Thank you for listening to the Sunday School Teaching Ministry of Pastor Luke Pollock at the Home Church of Lodi, California. You can get more information about our church and about starting a relationship with Jesus Christ at www.thehomechurch.net. Our prayer is that this message from God's Word will renew your heart and mind today. All right, well, praise the Lord. I'm excited to get back into the book of Ecclesiastes here this morning. Ecclesiastes chapter 6 is where we're headed, so you can make your way there. For the record, we do not support assassinating anybody. (laughs) Yeah, I feel feel like sometimes I have to clean up after Dad gets talking. Yeah, I just just feel that responsibility sometimes, I don't know. Uh, uh, The search for meaning, meaning, Uh, Ecclesiastes. These days, we have unprecedented access to the lives of celebrities. I mean, literally, if you want to know something about somebody, you can probably find it. It's a hobby for a lot of people. It's an obsession for other people to dig into the lives of famous people. But the interesting thing about knowing so much about the lives of the rich and famous is that you discover that they are just people with the same problems that we all share. This week's big news, of course, is all about the death of famous actor Matthew Perry. Uh, Chandler Bing, for some. Um, There are nonstop stories about him and tributes for him. And because of his fame and everybody knowing about his life, everybody knows that he dealt with a very serious drug addiction. But there's one thing that fascinated me about something about Matthew Perry that I read about him. In an interview he gave a while back, he said that he prayed two times in his life. He said the first prayer was early on, and he prayed that God would make him famous. And he thought that this would take care of all the inner turmoil in his life at the time. And second, years later, already when he was well-known and going, getting ready to go through, I think, another rehab stint, he and felt really at he, he was at rock bottom, he said that he had, he prayed for God to save him. Um, and those were his words. And he said he had an encounter with God at that time, and he said, God saved my life. Now, I don't know the eternal state of Matthew's soul. I don't know where he was at with all of that. But as we all know, that story is all too common. A person has everything. They reach the pinnacle but they cannot truly enjoy what they have because they're made for something more than that stuff. They're made for what's more than just under the sun. And that's what Ecclesiastes is all about. Ecclesiastes talks about, it gives us that one statement that we talked about a few weeks ago. God has placed eternity in our hearts. Every human being, there is Every human being aches for something eternal, something above the sun, beyond what's here. But so many people just focus on what's under the sun. And that's the look that Ecclesiastes is giving us. Solomon is trying to help us see, if you were to search for meaning only under the sun, can it be found? Jonathan Clements wrote in the Wall Street Journal, 
we may have life and liberty, but the pursuit of happiness isn't going so well. We constantly hanker after fancier cars and fatter paychecks, and initially such things boost our happiness. But the glow of satisfaction quickly fades, and soon we're yearning for something else. So at the end of the last chapter, chapter five, we saw five, Solomon gave us five specific disadvantages to being rich. He said the more you have, the more you want. The more you have, the more you spend. The more you have, the more you worry. The more you have, the more you have to lose. And then the more you have, the more you leave behind. The point was, it's not wrong to be wealthy. Certainly not. But just understand that money and riches and wealth brings its own set of problems and stress. So now Solomon, going into this next chapter here, we're going to see that he's going to share something that he finds deeply grieving. And this is one of the most, I don't know, maybe depressing <laughs> chapters really in the whole Bible, but it's not really. We'll see there's a light at the end of the tunnel. So first thing he talks about here in chapter 6, the very beginning, is riches without rejoicing. This thing he finds deeply grieving in him is that there's, there are people who have everything they could ever imagine, but they're simply unable to enjoy it. So here's verses one and two. There is an evil which I have seen under the sun, and it is common among men. A man to whom God has given riches, wealth, and honor, so that he wanteth or lacketh nothing for his soul of all that he desireth. Yet God giveth him not power to eat thereof, but a stranger eateth it. This is vanity and it is an evil disease. So he starts by talking about a man who has literally everything. Riches, wealth, honor, no lack, anything his soul desires, I mean, that's a, that's a person who literally does have any, everything he could ever imagine. God has allowed him, it says, to have all of these things. God has given it to him, and that's any riches anybody has, God has allowed them to have that. And we don't know why here, but God has not given him the power to eat it, or in other words, to enjoy it. And a stranger comes and eats it and enjoys it. Now, we could speculate, but... Perhaps this man has pushed God out of, and, and other people out of his life, and now he's paying the consequences. Perhaps he is self-destructed, and he's died an early death. Maybe he minimized the important things in life, and just to attain this material wealth and all of these things, maybe he treated people uh, horribly, he used people, never told anybody he loved them, and because he was so self-focused, then he died before he came to his senses. I, we, we don't really know the story of this man. We don't know the exact story, but we've all seen it play out in different ways in people's lives. Makes me think of Scrooge in some ways. Uh, this, if anybody should be able to enjoy life, it was Scrooge, Ebenezer Scrooge. He had so much. He was so wealthy, and yet he had so little. Speaking of celebrities, uh, Johnny Carson said something really profound on this issue, and I think it's really good. He said, the only thing money can do is take away your worry about not having money. <laughs> That's the only thing money can do. That's it. True meaning and fulfillment must come from somewhere else. 
Solomon says that this scenario here is playing out in people's lives. It's all too common. And it is, he says, vanity and it's an evil disease. And you know it's, it's an evil disease out there. It's a handful of vanity. It's a handful of air. It's a handful of nothing. And it affects so many people running around trying to get stuff but never able to enjoy it for one reason or another. But he shows here that it gets even worse. Look at verse three. If a man beget an hundred children and live many years so that the days of his years be many and his soul be not filled with good and also that he have no burial, I say that an untimely birth is better than he. So he now gives this hypothetical situation and it's very exaggerated. So let's say a man is extremely wealthy and he has 100 children and a long life. Now to the ancient Jews, that was seen as a, he was seen as a very wealthy and blessed man. Uh, apparently, my kids just told me this week, there's a, man, there's a woman in Russia right now who wants 100 children, I guess, apparently. Now most of you parents probably aren't trying to break that record and get 100 children, but the point is that this man is wealthy beyond imagination. He has more than anybody could, could, even, could even think. But here's the problem. He, is, he doesn't enjoy it, as it says here, because his soul is not filled with good. There's a problem in his soul. This means that deep in his heart, there is no joy, there is no contentment with all that he has. He can't enjoy it. And he has no burial. This means that his family hates him, basically. They're not going to bury him with honor. And of course, to the Jew back then, that was the ultimate slap in the face. The ultimate sign of disrespect, if somebody, uh, if somebody doesn't love you, they're not going to give you a, a burial. They're just, he has a bunch of family around, hundreds of children, all these people around him, but they're all just waiting for him to die so that they can get their inheritance. So this is the person with no peace in his heart and no love in his home. Can it get any worse than that? No peace in his heart and no love in his home. If you think about it, the best things in life under the sun here are the simple things. The best moments are the simple moments. Having a clear conscience because of Christ. Drinking coffee and reading the Bible and meeting with the Lord on a quiet, peaceful morning. <laughs> Sitting and having my little granddaughter on my knee. Looking across the table at my wife and ha on a date sitting outside on our deck and just talking with my children, laughing with family on vacation and just having a good time. Peace in the heart and love in the home. The simple things are the best things that God has given us and they are the things that really just fill our soul with good. Let me just remind everybody here this morning, learn how to enjoy the small things. Learn how to enjoy the small things. Don't be so focused on all these other things out there that we're not enjoying the very, the most precious things, right? At peace in our heart and love in our home. Don't be like this super rich jerk right here who alienated everybody. When life is a big, dark, miserable existence full of strife and hatred everywhere you go, then honestly, Solomon says, here's what, I, here's what Solomon concluded. Even if you have money, and all the stuff, it's better to have been miscarried in the womb. It's better for an untimely birth, it says. I say that an untimely birth is better than he. That's right. It's better to have been be a miscarried baby than to be that guy. 
One author said about this, he said, it's better to miscarry in birth than to miscarry in life. Why? Verses four and five tell us, for he, this is the baby, cometh in, in with vanity and departeth in darkness, and his name shall be covered with darkness. Moreover, he hath not seen the sun nor known anything. This hath more rest than the other. So speaking of that stillborn child, the baby that came in and left in darkness, they never saw the sun, their name is not prominent in this world, but that baby has something better than that rich, wealthy jerk, and that is rest, rest. And that, of course, brings comfort to many of those of us who've lost children. We, we know those, it's sometimes, we think about that. It's better for that baby to go right into the arms of Jesus. But what, a, what, a, what an amazing thought and really a depressing thought for those who are in the middle of living a life like that. Solomon expands on that with another exaggerated hypothetical in verse six. Yea, though he live a thousand years, twice told, yet hath he seen no good. Do not all go to one place. In other words, even if you could push off death for 2,000 years, a thousand twice told, even if you could be somehow just keep going for 2,000 years, but if you're not happy and content with inside your soul, your soul doesn't have good, then how are you better off than that stillborn baby? It all ends the same. Death. Death is the great leveler. The famous Karl Barth said, someday a company of men will process out to a churchyard and lower a coffin and everyone will go home. But one will not come back and that will be me. See, our time under the sun, everybody knows we're all going to die. Our time under the sun ends the same way for every single person. We've talked about this, and as someone has said, the worm always wins. The worm wins. We all get eaten by the worm. Who is encouraged this morning by all this wonderful talk? Who is saying, thank you, Pastor Luke, I'm glad I'm here. Remember, Ecclesiastes is written with an under-the-sun perspective on everything, on death. Heaven and eternal life and what's above the sun is a sermon for another day. Solomon is trying to help us see that there is no hope if you're just trying to find meaning here and you're looking here under the sun. If it's all about this, it's all about this, there will be no meaning. He's trying to get us to the end of ourselves, to that place where we finally give up and say there's, there's something else. None of, this, none of this pursuit of meaning matters here. And with that in mind, here's another question that Solomon then comes to. If we're down here, knowing all of this, can we ever really be satisfied at all down here? This is number two now. Activity without achievement. Solomon's going to talk about activity without any achievement. Look at verse seven. All the labor of man is for his mouth, and yet the appetite is not filled. So Solomon, in his search, in his search for meaning, noticed something about human nature, and that is that all of our work here on earth really just goes to feed our hunger. Uh, but he noticed also the hunger then comes right back a few hours later. So, so, so what are we doing here? Can there ever actually be any satisfaction? Can we ever actually feel full? Can our appetites ever feel full here? Someone has said, all money can do is buy you food for another six hours. It can only, basically, money can only extend your life a little bit longer. And we work to eat, 
which gives us the strength to go to work so that we can eat again. And here we are on the treadmill of life again. Just the treadmill, just the treadmill. Back and forth, back and forth. We're doing the same thing every day. And with, if, you're, if your view is only under the sun, this is vanity. That's why he says vanity and vanity. It's all vanity here. Solomon's point is we all have appetites that are never really satisfied under the sun. Verse eight, for what hath the wise more than the fool? What hath the poor that knoweth to walk before the living? So knowing that we are all just here feeding our appetites that are never actually satisfied, we get hungry again in all of our appetites, knowing that, is a wise person really any better off than a fool? I mean, maybe in some ways, but the wise still have recurring appetites that never go away. What about a poor man who, he says here, knows how to live a good life, how to know, knows how to live a moral life? Well, sure, that's better than the alternative, but still he has appetites that this life can never satisfy. It doesn't matter how wise you are or how much money you have. He says we are all unfulfilled human beings. Verse nine, better is the sight of the eyes than the wandering of the desire. This is also vanity and vexation of spirit. Now, notice the phrase here, the wandering of desire. Wandering of the desire. See, here's what he's saying. The interesting thing about our desires and our appetites is that they, they wander. They're always on the lookout for something else, something better, something shinier. Warren Wearsby says, desire is a tramp. Never content to stay at home. It always wants to go out wandering. Our desires are always traveling, but never arriving. This is the wanderlust of the human soul. Well said. Why do people walk away from God? Why do people walk away from their families? Why do people walk away from their spouses? Why do people walk away from all that is good and, and healthy for their life? Well, one of the reasons, the big reasons, is because of wandering desires. Why are people divorcing? I, speaking of celebrities, you know, I, I think it's Meryl Streep. <laughs> divorcing after 45 years of marriage? Why are people divorcing after 45 years of marriage? I mean, why divorce at all, but wandering desires. But following after these wandering desires, as we all know here, is a surefire way for being miserable. The, because the appetite is never filled. The appetite never gets filled. We wander, we wander, we wander, we think that's gonna do it, and it never does it. There's a striking example of this that comes from the excavations from the city of Pompeii. Uh, Mount Vesuvius erupted, and Pompeii was buried. Many people perished, and as we all know, we've seen the pictures and images. People were literally buried in place. I mean, frozen in time. And from all this volcanic ash, even their facial expressions you can see. One of the uh, people they found was a woman whose feet was pointed in the direction of the city gate, so she was leaving, but her face was turned in the opposite direction, and she was looking back at something just beyond the reach of her outstretched hands. And she was frozen this way, feet one way, hand reaching out the other way, and she was grasping for something. And what was she grasping for? They found a bag of pearls. 
you know, whether suddenly she remembered that she left those pearls or she, somebody had dropped them or whatever, it's kind of that image of unattainable desire, frozen right there, the human soul. So many people are burnt, they're destroying their lives because they're wandering desires, they're reaching out for something that they shouldn't even go after in the first place. Solomon says here, now here's what he says about this, and this is great wisdom. Better is the sight of the eyes than the wandering desires. Meaning it's better to be content with what's already in front of your eyes than to go after those wandering desires. This is, he's talking about contentment. My favorite definition of contentment, you've probably heard it, is wanting what you already have. Wanting what you already have. Wanting what's already right there in front of your eyes. And that kind of contentment only comes with a perspective that we've been talking about here for the last few weeks that God keeps talking about here in the book of Ecclesiastes, and that is this perspective of everything in life is a gift from God. All that I have is a gift. The, the, the way to have contentment is to first have that perspective. God, you have given all of this. Now think about it for just a minute. Jesus says, I came to give life and give it more abundantly. But what did Jesus have? What did Jesus have? He had nowhere to lay his head. He had no wealth. He had none of the things that we all think are so important. And yet, what he had was what he called abundant life that I want to give you. He had everything anybody could really truly ever want. It was perfect communion with the Father and then doing the Father's will, being in the will of God. And if our relationship with the Lord is good, and I'm living in God's will, that is the best place I could possibly be. That is the most satisfied I'll ever be if I could see it this way. God is not against dreams and ambitions and going after stuff. That's not what we're talking about here. But we better put all of that in the right priority in our hearts. And as I mentioned, the key to contentment is this everything is a gift perspective. But the key to that perspective to have everything as a gift perspective is a full-hearted acceptance of the authority and the design of God. We have to accept the sovereignty of God, the fact that he is in charge and he has designed what he has designed for my life. I have to fully accept this. You're in charge, I don't, I'm not, and I'm not gonna fight with you about it, and that's what we're gonna see in these next verses. Look at verse 10, but first let me give you the, what I think he's talking about here, and that is contentment without contending contentment without contending. Look in verse 10. That which hath been is named already, and it is known that it is man. Neither may he contend with him that is mightier than he. So when this says, that which hath been is named already, that's a statement of God's authority. God has named everything. Because he created everything. That's a way of saying God has done it already. Everything that's been, he's already named. It's, done, it's a done deal, including man and woman. When you name something, it means you have ownership of that thing. If you have the ability to name it, you're the owner. So God owns it all, and he knows how to run this universe that he made. My, my youngest son, Joshua, he watches these videos, uh, sports videos with his older brothers sometimes. He watched people playing basketball, and they... 
they throwback videos from old-time guys playing basketball. And the other day, Joshua asked me, he does this regularly, I feel like, but he asked me, uh, Dad, do you remember watching Wilt Chamberlain play basketball? And I was offended. How old do you think I am? Uh, you know, or, I, or we tell our kids, you know, I didn't even have cell phones when I was a kid. That's not, didn't exist, and it blows their mind. You're like, were you friends with Abe Lincoln, Dad, or what? You know, <laughs> the, the, the point is here, we don't actually, us, we don't, I don't care how old you are here, folks, we don't actually go back that far. <laughs> were you there when God made Adam and Eve? Did you counsel God? God said, you know, God, you should put that star that way. You should put the moon over here. You should design it this way. Did anybody help God design the galaxies? Of course not. We didn't even have any control over the big things in our own lives. Did you choose your parents? Did you give yourself your skin color? Did you even give yourself a name? Now, some of you might rename yourself later, but did you give yourself your name? No. When God says everything is named already, it, it means it's settled. Long before you were a gleam in your daddy's eye. So don't think that you can contend with God who is mightier than you. God made Adam. He created Adam. He breathed life into this human being. And then he told Adam, he said, Adam, this earth that I made is for you but you are made for me. His one purpose on life, Adam and then Eve, was for God. All of this is for you, but you are for me. The fall changed some things, but not, did not change that. And you may not like it, but you cannot change why you were made. You and I were made for God. You've been named already through no power of your own. And the point here is that you cannot, the point Solomon is saying is, you cannot be satisfied fully until you are content with God's plan for you. Don't contend. You can't argue with somebody who's mightier than you. Don't contend. Be content. And this is a good moment now for me just to quickly bring up transgenderism and gender confusion here for just a minute. The core problem for those struggling in this is that they have not fully accepted God's plan for them. The naming of man and woman and you. The stats show that people who are gender confused, as they call it, are deeply unsatisfied people, living very unhappy lives. And I'm not discounting that they feel they, they, what they say, what their feelings are, that I feel like a man trapped in a woman's body or a woman trapped in a man's body. I, that, sh, I, that probably is how you feel. But here's the thing. We all have wandering desires, which God won't allow. And sadly, when, often when they go through these sex change surgeries, it's just a Band-Aid on a gushing wound. And after the surgery, they deal with just as much dissatisfaction and just as much sadness because it has not gotten to the core of the issue. And that grieves me, honestly. My heart goes out to them, but they have to accept what God has given them. The answer then is not to affirm their, desire, their wandering desires. We don't do that. We can't do that. We, but we have to help them accept that there is no use contending with somebody who is mightier than you. 
you ha- we all have to come to a place where we accept how God has set up everything. And by the way, every testimony that I've ever heard regarding this, somebody who's come out of transgenderism or homosexuality for that matter, the same thing. Every time I've heard their testimony, it always centers around the fact when they finally just embraced and accepted how God has made them. Their, Their identity as defined by God and not them or anybody else. This is when they found freedom and peace. And this is really how anybody is gonna find freedom and peace. We have to, it's how with all of our desires, our appetites, none of us will ever be satisfied until we stop fighting with God and embrace his, his vision and his design. Verse 11, seeing that there be many things that increase vanity, what is man the better? Now the word things, translated things here, can also be translated words. It's more often translated words. So the idea here is that you can keep talking uh, to God about all of this, but that just adds to the vanity of life. How does it make man better to argue with God, to keep arguing with God? It's a useless enterprise. It's so much better to just accept God's plan and keep your mouths closed. <laughs> Every dad has, has had to, one time or another, had to tell their children, less yapping, more working. Less talking, just do what you're supposed to do. And that's kind of the, the idea here. God is saying, listen, folk, listen, children. Less talking. Just accept what the, your situation is and get on with it. Get on with life. And lastly, in verse 12, for who knoweth what is good for man in this life? All the days, uh-oh, listen, real good. For who knoweth what is good for man in this life? all the days of his vain life which he spendeth as a shadow. For who can tell a man what shall be after him under the sun? So now Solomon poses two rhetorical questions. Who knows what is best for man down here in this short little existence that we have? And who can tell a man what shall be after him under the sun? Well, there's an obvious answer here. Only God, the manufacturer, the creator, the sustainer, only him. He's the the only one that can answer these questions. Again, this just goes back then to accept then who he is and accept what he's done. But notice the questions there. Who knows and then who can tell? Now that implies a couple things. It implies that we don't have either answer naturally. We can't just wake up and know within ourselves what will satisfy us. And no person, you can't find it within your heart. No person can tell you, so there's two things, who, who knows, that means we can't know from just us, and then who can tell? There's nobody outside here that can tell you how your life is going to turn out if you just do this, this, this. Or you're gonna have satisfaction if, I, if you follow my path. A lot of people strut around like authorities on life, but lasting authority, or excuse me, a lasting Uh, answers and lasting uh, satisfaction doesn't come from under the sun. It comes from above the sun. It only comes from God. And this is why God's word is so important to our lives. As one commentator said, the preacher, uh, Solomon here, is slamming every door except the door of faith. He's slamming every door except the door of faith. That's what Ecclesiastes is really meant to do. 
There is nothing in this world to give you the answers for finding meaning in this life. It is only above the sun. And by faith, we have to accept what God has said and follow that in spite of what we feel or what people say. I'm going to, you know, and there's so many stories out there, like the prodigal son, for example, who thought he knew how to feed his appetites. He thought he knew what he wanted. But true joy was back at rest with his father. I'm going to read this great fable as I close here. Listen to this. There was a man with the odd name, Horville Sash. Horville had a very humble job in a certain company, a job in the lowest basement of a building. He was a mailroom clerk. As mailroom clerk, there was no one who was lower than he was. One day, he came across a bug scurrying across the floor. Horville may have the lowliest job in the whole company, but he was bigger than the bug. So he raised his foot to flatten the hapless bug, but this story is a fable and the bug speaks. Spare me, said the bug, and I will grant you your fondest wishes. Horval spared the bug. His reward, a wish. A wish to be promoted to the second floor, he said. I wish to be promoted to the second floor, and his wish was granted. Zap, he found himself working on the second floor. But wait, Horval heard footsteps on the ceiling of floor number two. A higher level meant higher wages. The next day, Horville rose to the third floor job of sales coordinator. But that didn't end his ambition. He wished for still more promotions. He went to the 10th floor, then to the 20th, the 50th, the 70th. Still, he was not satisfied. Horville was sitting by the indoor pool on floor 96 when he discovered a stairway leading up to another floor. He scrambled up the stairs and found himself on the roof. At last, he was the highest, the greatest. Finally content, he headed for the down stairway when he came across a boy on the edge of the building with his eyes closed. What are you doing? Praying. To whom? The boy pointed a finger skyward and replied, to God. Panic gripped Horval. Was there a floor above him? He couldn't see it, and he couldn't hear any footsteps shuffling around up there. Just clouds. Do you mean that there's somebody above me? Someone greater than I? Yes. The bug was summoned. Make me God. Make me the greatest. Put me in the type of position that only God would hold if he were here on earth. And it was granted. And the very next day, Horval began work back in the basement, helping others to be successful in their jobs. You and I can chase after our version of success or we can accept God's version of success and satisfaction and meaning. Look at the celebrities today and think about which one is better. That's, I think, the point Solomon is trying to make here in this chapter. Lord, we love you. We hope you enjoyed listening to the preaching and teaching from God's Word today. You can get more information about our church and about starting a relationship with Jesus Christ at www.thehomechurch.net. From all of us here at The Home Church in Lodi, California, thank you for joining us.